We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, WTIC-FM and WTIC.com. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning and we are pleased to be joined by Dana Moffinson. He is a special agent with the Drug Enforcement Administration and he's here to talk to us and give us an update on the opioid addiction crisis which has been gripping not only Connecticut but really the entire country. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Aaron. Well, bring us up to date. Has the opioid addiction crisis plateaued? Is it evolving? Has it subsided at all? Or does it continue to increase in Connecticut? I would define the opioid epidemic in Connecticut as concerning. We've seen some trends continue to move in one direction, and we've seen some trends continue to move in the other. What are some of the most concerning trends you see? I would say that the fentanyl and fentanyl analogs that we see, as well as the counterfeit pharmaceuticals, and the diverted pharmaceuticals remain a, a major concern to law enforcement. On the other side of the coin, are you seeing any encouraging trends? Well, the response by our first responders, the carrying of Narcan, and the response to the traditional heroin overdoses, um, that trend is actually reversed from what we've seen in years past and declined in our, our opioid overdose deaths involving heroin. Looking at newly released numbers from the state medical examiner, there were over a thousand accidental overdose deaths in Connecticut last year, and fentanyl was involved in 677 of them. And that is up from just 14 back in 2012. What is fentanyl? What makes it so dangerous? Fentanyl is essentially a synthetic opioid, and it is created in laboratories. Uh, overseas, primarily in China and or Mexico. It's brought into the United States and it's sold oftentimes as heroin. Um, we find that a lot of users of heroin are using oftentimes the fentanyl or the analogs, um, not even knowing that it, what it is. Um, we've also found some users who are actually seeking out that drug. Um, and because it is synthetically produced, it is of varying potency, but it is it is of a much greater potency than heroin. So oftentimes people don't even know what they're taking. Correct. Oftentimes the users of, of heroin or other opioids are taking this fentanyl and not understanding exactly what it is. And like I said, we actually have had encountered some users of it who are seeking out, looking for a, a better high, if you will. When this crisis emerged, was it a challenge for the authorities to figure out what was in these drugs that people are taking. Initially, when we responded, if you're looking at the, the numbers from the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, clearly our, our response to fentanyl has, has increased. Um, and what we've had to do is educate ourselves in identifying the substances. We've had to educate ourselves on how to respond to it. Um, there's some safety issues from, from a law enforcement response. 
and um, in terms of processing a crime scene and also in terms of uh, the street work that our local counterparts do on a daily basis. And talk about that partnership between federal authorities and state police and local police agencies here in Connecticut. Well, here in Connecticut, the DEA um, enjoys a, a very good relationship with our state and local counterparts. And that also extends to our campus police officers, our tribal police officers. And, and we have enjoyed a, a very good relationship. Um, but it is something that is continually evolving, and we're always looking to strengthen the relationships we have. Um, over the past few years, we have really codified our, our response to the opioid epidemic with our state and local counterparts. Um, and of course, we have our ongoing task forces here in Connecticut that involve the federal authorities and the local and state officers as well. And a lot of that has to do with education and how to treat a scene when police respond to an overdose. Correct. I think, you know, several years ago, law enforcement would respond to an overdose scene and it would be treated as an accidental overdose and there wouldn't be a further investigation in many instances. Over the past few years, the DEA and working with the United States Attorney's Office, we've really tried to educate the state and local officers to one, work with us, but two, to treat these scenes as a crime scene. And oftentimes that involves preserving the evidence, including the victim's cell phone. And what we've had to do is work with, with our forensic, forensic experts to, um, to gain access to these cell phones and understand exactly what took place prior to the, the overdose incident. With the ultimate goal being to track down the source of the drugs? Correct. Right. And oftentimes that starts with a, someone in between, a friend or a, a relative in some instances. And what we've tried to do is really um, work up the chain as fast as we can to identify the most lethal opioids out that are out in the streets right now. When authorities respond to an overdose scene, it, it seems the, the thinking has evolved a bit on how to handle that person if they survive and perhaps focusing more on treatment than putting them in a jail cell while going after the person or people who supply the drugs. But the lines can be blurred sometimes, can't they? Absolutely. You know, look, as DEA agents and our state and local counterparts, we're looking to identify and target the most significant drug distributors and individuals um, that we can. Um, but oftentimes with working fatal overdose investigations, we've found that the first person that we've come in contact with is a friend or relative of the deceased. But what we're trying to do is, is really work up the chain, identify the source of supply. And oftentimes that involves uh, the court getting involved to get treatment for those people who need treatment, but also separate those people who are distributing drugs from uh, the rest of our community. And I would imagine that sometimes these investigations can take you to uh, other countries. Well, some of these cases that we've been involved with, um, we have linked to much more significant investigations and ongoing investigations. And we've been fortunate to have the resources and support of the United States Attorney's Office uh, in doing these cases. Um, They've dedicated prosecutors who typically are involved in civil cases to work such cases that we're involved with. And um, they really have, have, have partnered up with us to, to make as, as much of an impact as we possibly can. The opioid addiction crisis doesn't seem to know any boundaries. It's not something that just affects cities or just affects the suburbs, is it? 
Right. And and also I'd I'd say every age group too. We've seen investigations take us to to interview teenagers and as well as much older people. Um, there's no economic boundary, there's no social boundary, and this has just devastated every aspect. I don't think there's a family in Connecticut that hasn't been directly or indirectly impacted by some aspect of this crisis. I know every story is different, and it's it's sometimes you get desensitized when you look at just the numbers, but every one of those numbers is a person. And is there a typical path that leads to addiction from what you see in your job? I think you certainly see some common trends with respect to opioid overdoses. Um, sometimes it's a college student who broke an ankle or had a knee injury and starts with a prescription for legitimate oxycodone, and that develops into an addiction, and it goes down the path that we've seen time and time again. Um, and of course, there's other paths that have led to addiction and 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 death, but um, there certainly are some common trends that we see. Um, when you talk about every every death being much more than a statistic, um, we do talk to families. We talk to to of overdose victims. And on the way here this morning, I, I did have another conversation with with a family member who of a, of an overdose that occurred almost a year ago. And uh, and every every overdose that that every fatal overdose that happens in Connecticut is uh, impacts a family and 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 it is a problem. That must be mentally grueling to have to have those conversations with with people who oftentimes are in grief and shock over the loss of a loved one. They are difficult. Um, I am fortunate to work with a wonderful group of, of other DEA agents and diversion investigators, supervisors, and prosecutors. And we have assembled a team of, of people who are dedicated to doing this. And, and all throughout Connecticut, throughout the United States, and, and outside of the United States, there are DE agents uh, like myself working very hard um, at all, all hours trying to, trying to reverse the, these trends. And, and we will continue to do that and, 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 and continue to try and make an effort. Families of overdose victims, are, are they angry? Are they upset? Do they want to find out where these drugs came from? Do they want to go after the, the people producing these drugs? You know, I, I don't think I can say that every family fits into one category. Um, I think the common theme is a lot of these parents, um, particularly the parents, sometimes brothers or sisters, they want to see something good come out of a, hor- a horrific situation and they don't want it to happen to anyone else. And I think that's an admirable thing. Um, and certainly the phone calls that I get and the phone calls I get from local law enforcement um, oftentimes are our parents advocating for, for their family members' investigation to proceed forward. And it is challenging um, from our end because there are so many of them that we've become involved with, and, and that's another area where we've had to rely on our, our state and local counterparts to really help us push forward. And to hear some of the family members who, who've lost loved ones speak, I mean, police can can say all they want about overdoses and the, the dangers of, of drugs, but to hear it from a family member who's, who's lost someone, that's powerful. It is, and the United States Attorney's Office um, recognized that, and part of what we do is we go out to schools, high schools, uh, middle schools, community groups, 
and we address the student body, we address the, the parents, and we have conversations with them. And almost on every occasion, we actually bring one of the parents or family members from an overdose uh, victim, and they speak. And their story is far more powerful than what I have to say or what a prosecutor has to say. You're listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Dana Moffinson. He's a special agent with the Drug Enforcement Administration talking about the opioid addiction crisis in Connecticut. You mentioned the growing concern of counterfeit pharmaceuticals. I would gather these are produced by people who have profit in mind and don't really care about the consequences. People sell heroin to make money. And when a counterfeit substance such as fentanyl came onto the scene at a much cheaper cost, people profiting off of the sale of heroin transitioned to the sale of fentanyl. It was clearly more profitable. And with the popularity of prescription pharmaceuticals, particularly opioids, those people who are selling these drugs identified that as an area to increase their profits. Um, Oftentimes, we find these people are manufacturing counterfeit pills, either with quite simple tools and dyes or really sophisticated equipment. And sometimes that's done here in the United States, and sometimes that's done outside of the United States. But those prescription pills are of varying potency. Um, We have seized pills that have no oxycodone, no controlled substance in it, and we've seized pills that are strict fentanyl. And when those pills hit the street, they're particularly dangerous. One of the concerning things is that when law enforcement puts out an alert about an especially potent version of a drug that is out there and has caused a number of overdoses and maybe deaths, there are some people who will, in fact, seek that out. We have found that, and, and the local police chiefs and the prosecutors have to make a decision and find a balance. We have an obligation to protect the public, and, and those decisions are made with the, the best interest of the community. Um, and sometimes that is a concern, putting out a brand or a particular substance, but we've found that it is important to, to educate everyone we possibly can as to what's going on. You've talked about the, the multi-pronged approach to, to fight this epidemic. What can the average person do? I'm thinking about maybe disposal or if you have a surgery or something, foregoing powerful painkillers if you can. Well, DEA does have the drug take-back program, which has been very successful over the years. Um, Literally, people are encouraged to bring their unused pharmaceuticals um, to DEA disposal sites. And now we see that local law enforcement agencies are, are putting in programs where people can drop things off at the local police departments. Um, But DEA, even with a conservative estimate of, say, 10 percent, we we feel that we have um, removed a lot of these powerful opioids out of out of the medicine cabinets and and disposed of them properly. And that really is an issue that, you know, it's that that painkiller you maybe didn't even take after a surgery that's sitting in the medicine cabinet and who can get access to that. Right. And we have found that many young people start experimenting with drugs or or use uh, or go to the medicine cabinet in their parents' or a friend's house. And that is that is concerning. It's, it, we really try to address that and educate the community that these pills need not be there. It, it seems there has been more talk in the past year or so with the medical community about what they can do to maybe quell this, this crisis in terms of how 
drugs are prescribed and alternatives. Do you see that conversation continuing to evolve? I think so. Um, you know, on one hand, DEA agents and diversion investigators, um, not only do we target, say, typical street-level dealers and distributors and organizations responsible for, for selling drugs, but we also have a huge regulatory responsibility and we also do enforce diverted pharmaceuticals, be it a doctor who's overprescribing for profit or a pharmacist that is diverting pharma- pharmaceutical pills out of their, out of their stockpile. Um, but I do think that the conversation will continue and the medical community will certainly has a role in, in this and, and has a stake in it as well. Is doctor shopping still common and is that a, a major component of, of the addiction crisis? One of the problems that we face as investigators is that there are just so many areas where these drugs are diverted. And one of those, one of those aspects is doctor shopping. Um, the state of Connecticut and other states in the United States have, have actually Im- implemented programs to help us and, and other law enforcement deal with that. But doctor shopping remains, a, remains an issue. And this is basically a person going from doctor to doctor seeking same prescription or, or similar prescriptions to, to satisfy an addiction. Correct. And, and sometimes it's to satisfy an addiction and sometimes it's to driven for profit where there's someone else behind it in a much more organized or much more formalized network. Looking at the overdose, the accidental overdose uh, d- death numbers from 2017 in Connecticut, as we mentioned earlier, over 1,000, in fact, 1,038 those numbers would be higher if it were not for overdose reversal drugs. I think they would be. I think that they, the availability of Narcan and the training of Narcan has certainly impacted that. Um, and it's easy to point out that the numbers have increased, but I, I certainly we can appreciate the fact that the numbers most certainly would have increased even further had we not been doing what we're doing. And drugs like Narcan are, are widely available now. First responders typically carry them, others carry them just in case. Is there the threat that someone might say, well, if if I overdose, if I take too much, someone will be there with Narcan to bring me back? Some of the people that we've come in contact with say they've overdosed and they thankfully haven't passed. Um, they We do oftentimes find that there is, is Narcan. Um, I've never really stopped to think about the standpoint or the viewpoint that um, for an addict or someone who's using to have Narcan available. I mean, we're out here doing what we do to try and save lives, and we'll take, we'll take any advantage that we can uh, get our hands on to, to make something good come of this. How important a component is education, especially youth, when it comes to addiction? It's critical. I mean, that's, that's why we're doing what we're doing, um, speaking to schools. It's not something that we... Uh, years ago would do as much as we're doing now, but we are finding the the agents, we're finding the prosecutors to go out and do this because it's important. Um, certainly talking to the student groups during the day um, and speaking to the parent groups at night is something we found very effective. And oftentimes we'll do that in, in concert with a video or some other, um, some other graphics that are, are useful. I'm wondering what the average day is like for a DEA special agent? Well, um, there is no special agent typical day. Um, Certainly, 
there's a lot of administrative work, there's surveillance, controlled purchases. There are there are an, an varying varying things that that DE agents do. Um, we are always always doing surveillance. We are doing, um, like I said, working with confidential sources and doing controlled purchases. We're doing undercover work and research. We're working with prosecutors, completing federal search warrants and arrest warrants, and of course, enforcement activities. Um, our surveillance could be several minutes in a day, or it could take hours. And like I said earlier, there's there's efforts being done um, at all hours of the day throughout the state, throughout the United States, and outside in our foreign our foreign offices, working with our foreign counterparts. So there really is no typical day, um, but there are. There are more more challenging aspects, and 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 um, we're out there doing what we can do. I gather that when federal authorities made the decision to really try to tackle the opioid addiction crisis, your workload must have increased a lot, and maybe cases that didn't even come across your desk before are now a focus. Right, and I think for me personally, staying organized has helped. Um, but like I said earlier. We really have have looked to to our state and local officers to help us, and part of that process involves deputizing them and pushing out the tools that we enjoy to our to our counterparts. And that may be something as simple as helping a local officer extract the telephone, a cellular telephone seized at a crime scene, or it may include um, funding the purchase of some equipment so that they're able to do something um, with us or or on their own. Um, so yeah, we've had to to. Get creative in how we deal with the the challenges of a of a, a different a different caseload. I'm guessing even just trying to get into a cell phone can be a challenge sometimes. But is there a typical amount of time it would take to process an average overdose scene? I would say that each scene is different. Um, most of the overdose death investigations that we have been successful with have involved a cell phone. Um, of course, that the the methods of communication today are ever changing, and we have to educate ourselves. Um, so some things, some things we're able to do rather quickly, and some things take some more time. When you're prosecuting these cases, it oftentimes comes down to how how judges handle them. Have you seen an evolution of, of how judges are are dealing with these cases? Well, when the United States Attorney's Office uh, committed with us to work these cases, the one of the things that I've noticed in a, that's different in these types of overdose investigations and prosecutions is involving the families of the victims and giving them an opportunity to speak at the sentencing of these of our drug arrests um, has had a meaningful impact, um, I believe, with the judges. I think typically we've seen sentences increase in many cases, and the, involving these parents has, has made a tremendous impact um, not only in in prosecuting these cases, but in how these cases are handled, our intake, um, and and how we're able to commit resources to them. Give us an idea of the penalty for selling, say, fentanyl or heroin laced with fentanyl. Well, it's difficult to give you an idea of sentences because the range could be so great based on the offender history and the offender conduct. Um, we have seen sentencings range anywhere from, say, probation to many years in jail. And that would, again, depend on a number of factors, including cooperation of the defendant, acceptance of responsibility, prior conduct, history, um, and really the, the offense. Um, and 
we've had to, the prosecutors have actually been creative in their charging. Um, for example, um, a federal charge that we didn't typically use before would be selling to a person under the age of 21 years old. And depending on the, the age of the victim or the age of the customer, the sentencing could change. He is Special Agent Dana Moffinson with the Drug Enforcement Administration. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.